Please stand for the reading of God's word. Today's reading is from John chapter 7, verses 1 through 36. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man. Others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is, this, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed, as he taught in the temple, you know me, and you know where I come from. But I have not come on my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. 
The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying you will seek me and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. This is God's word. Good morning. Oh, great. It's working. Good. <laughs> Let's pray. Dear Father, thank you so much for your word as was read to us today. Thank you for your many blessings for us as Rado uh, reminded us. Uh, we pray that we can learn today from your word and understand it and pray that I can re- reflect it accurately to this congregation today. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever thought that you really knew a person? that you had them all figured out, and then suddenly realized you were very wrong, that you had missed something, that they were really different than what they seemed to be and that you had judged them incorrectly, or their part of their past was completely unexpected to you. It's happened to me many times, um, and one very memorable time was at my high school graduation party. My parents had invited my English teacher, a great teacher, with a strong, you know, left-wing political and social view, and my Uncle Tony, an Italian barber who had a picture of Benito Mussolini, the founder of fascism, in his barbershop. Two people on completely opposite sides of the political spectrum. My dad was very concerned that they might get into an argument and ruin the whole party. So he was hoping they wouldn't interact with each other too much and told us to try to keep them away from each other. Well, the party started, and guess who showed up first? Yep, my English teacher and Uncle Tony. I was a bit scared, especially when I watched my Uncle Tony run right up to my English teacher and shout at her, Sister Bernadette. I I was stunned. Sister Bernadette? Turns out she used to be a Catholic nun in town, and my uncle used to give her rides around town since she didn't have a car. I had no idea. They hadn't seen each other in years, and they had a happy reunion, and I was completely floored. So today's passage is full of people who were jumping to conclusions about who Jesus was with incomplete evidence, just like I came to the wrong conclusion about my English teacher and my Uncle Tony without knowing their history. John shows us how their incomplete and outright erroneous views of who Jesus is are directly linked to how they interact with him. Many of the people who were the most wrong about Jesus knew him well. They had interacted with him on multiple occasions, but they still weren't able to see who Jesus really was any more than others who were seeing him for the first time. As we look back at them today, it's easy for us to think that they should have been able to follow all the trails, sorry, the trail of clues that were laid down through the whole Old Testament to connect the dots with what was happening right in front of them to see who Jesus really was. Thankfully, we learn later that some of them actually did learn Jesus' true identity, but many did not. Today's passage shows us how easy it is to take incomplete information, combine that with our own biases, and then come to the wrong conclusion about who Jesus is. Who we think Jesus is will have a dramatic influence on our own lives. 
So it's worthwhile for us to dive into this passage. There are many groups of people represented in this passage. Uh, first, we get to hear from Jesus' direct family, at least his brothers. His sisters, mentioned in Matthew's gospel, were probably a little bit smarter. So what did his brothers think about him? Let's set the scene. They're still in Galilee, and at this point in time, Jesus was not interested in going south into Judea. Why? The last time he was there, he had healed an invalid who had been waiting for healing for 38 years. That sounds fantastic. Well, it wasn't so fantastic to the Jewish authorities at the time because Jesus had healed him on the Sabbath and had told him to pick up his mat and walk. This was a major offense to the authorities because of how focused they were on no work on the Sabbath. Rather than focus on the bigger picture of the Sabbath and the purpose of the Sabbath, they zeroed in on a list of forbidden activities. Picking up a mat and walking with it was one of those forbidden activities since it was considered work. For this reason, and also because Jesus had clearly equated himself with God, the Judean authorities wanted to kill him. In their minds, he was a lawbreaker and a blasphemer. And as a result, someone who should not be allowed to live any longer. John tells us that the Feast of Booths was at hand. This was a major harvest celebration on the Jewish calendar that occurred on September or October, depending on the lunar calendar, the end of the harvest season. People came together to celebrate God's blessing of bountiful crops. It was also a holiday commemorating the Exodus, a time when the Jewish people left Egypt and lived in tents, or what's translated here as booths. So the families would build tents and move into them during the festival as a reminder of their dependence on God during the time back in the Exodus. Um, as I can relate, you know, from many experiences, living in a tent uh, can make you very thankful for all the blessings the Lord has given you um, when you're not living in a tent. The Feast of Booths uh, was the last major festival in the Jewish calendar, and all Jews were expected to return to Jerusalem to celebrate this major, major occasion. So Jesus' brothers saw an opportunity in this festival for Jesus and most likely for themselves. Let's read again what they said to him in verses 3 to 4. Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. On the surface, this sounds fairly harmless. Hey, brother, we have, a, we have a great idea. We know you've lost a lot of followers up here in Galilee after you stopped doing miracles and started teaching. So we heard about this last week when Travis preached on John 6. His brothers may have been mocking him a bit. You don't have too many disciples left here, so why don't you head down to the ones in Judea? Take advantage of this festival and do some more miracles. It would be the perfect opportunity to show yourself to the world. Stop all this hard teaching. That's, that's boring people, and people are leaving you. Stop hiding out here in Galilee. Let's, let's go big time. John, however, fills us in on a very important detail. For not even his brothers believed in him. How does this follow from what they just said? 
What would they have said differently if they did believe in him? And what's John trying to communicate to us, his readers? Before we go into this, let's remind ourselves of why John wrote this book. John gives us the whole point of his book in chapter 20, verse 31. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life on his name. So with that as, as his purpose, why is he pointing out this in the brothers? So the brothers were missing something. How did they demonstrate their unbelief uh, in these sentences that they said? I think the key words were, if he seeks to be known openly, and if you do these things. They were assuming, which is always a very dangerous pastime, that Jesus was doing all of his miracles for who? For himself. If he was doing everything for his own glory, going to Jerusalem to show off to everyone at the feast made perfect sense. His four brothers would also get a chance to bask in the glory of the miracle worker in their family. Hey, look at us. We're brothers of the, of the miracle worker. This, by definition, is unbelief. Anything that promotes our own glory over God's glory shows that we, and in this case, Jesus' brothers, just, just don't get it. They knew Jesus could pull off some amazing works. They just didn't realize that he was the Messiah, the Son of God, who had completely surrendered to God's will and not to his own. That was the essence of their unbelief. They probably were having a very difficult time seeing that he was more than just their brother. Jesus corrects them by telling them his time had not yet come. What did he mean by that? He knew that when he went back to Judea, he would be killed. He told them how the world hates him and not them. He told them why the world hates him, because he speaks out about their evil works. The time when he would go up publicly was ordained by the Father, not by him or by his brothers. Because he was the Messiah, the Son of God, he was subservient to that higher power. There was going to be a time he would enter Jerusalem very publicly, and we'll read about that uh, in future uh, weeks, when people would wave palm branches and welcome him into the city. But it was not this time. His brothers had realized that, had his brothers realized that, uh, they would have not tried to enforce their own will. They would have sought God's will. Let's move on. So Jesus arrives in Jerusalem privately. Even though he told his brothers he wasn't going, he did show up. In many early texts, the word yet is inserted into Jesus' statement in verse 8 about him not going up to the festival. You go to the festival, I am not yet going up to this festival because my time has not yet fully come. Even if it's not there, uh, it's pretty clear that Jesus didn't want to go up with his brothers at that time and had a different plan. John lets us in on what's happening in Jerusalem before Jesus arrives. The rumors have already started. The Jewish leaders, as Jesus had predicted, were already looking for him. And the Jews who had traveled to the feast were muttering. Their opinions about Jesus covered the whole spectrum from he is a good man to he is leading the people astray. Are they talking about the same person? Kind of amazing. What information did they have to come up with these opinions? We really do not know. But John lets us hear them before Jesus emerges from the crowd, 
just so we can see how divided the people were about Jesus based on their limited understanding and personal biases. He also lets us know that the people were afraid of their leadership and did not want to speak openly about Jesus. Fear leads to silence, especially when it comes to someone as polarizing as Jesus. Then Jesus emerges from the crowd. He first appears in the temple. He's teaching. No miracles, as his brothers were trying to convince him to do. Now we have a new reaction from the Jewish leaders. They marvel. They're stunned that this simple man with no formal training, no resume to speak of, no long list of men he has studied under, is teaching with authority in the temple. He's more than just a miracle worker. There is an authority here that they can't trace back to anything they can understand. Jesus takes this opportunity to drive home some major points about who he is for the leaders and for the benefit of the entire audience around him. Just like he addressed his brother's unbelief, he addresses the unbelief of his audience by directly telling them that the source of his knowledge is from God himself. That is the source of his authority. Not any man, God himself. He also offers a way the crowd should have been able to figure this out for themselves. If you were doing God's will and not your own, you will recognize that my teaching comes from God. We hear the same theme as with his brothers. Whose glory are you seeking? Your own or God's? In verse 18, we read, The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. Big difference. And he further drives home his argument by pointing out a major inconsistency in their logic. They wanted to kill him because he had healed a man on the Sabbath. He points out that the law allows them to circumcise a man on the Sabbath, or a child on the Sabbath, I should say. In verse 23, if on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Pretty difficult to argue with that one. What takes priority? Healing a man's whole body or sticking to some very hyperextended laws about not carrying a mat on the Sabbath? Then he comes in with a closing argument, as if he's in a courtroom. Verse 24, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. You need to take the big picture into consideration here. Judge with right judgment. Put it all together. Don't just let your biases and the little information that you have through outward appearances take control of your mind. Go deeper. Dig in. Realize that you don't know everything. Listen to God. Understand that I am not speaking for my own glory. I am not here for my own glory. I am here to glorify God the Father and to speak and act on His behalf. If you know Him, you know me. Once you have grappled with that, then you can make a judgment about who I am. Now the crowd's even more confused. <laughs> What's going on here? A conspiracy theory starts to form in their heads. Isn't this the guy they're trying to kill? What, what's stopping the authorities from trying to kill him? 
maybe they know he's really the Christ. What really throws them is some old legends based on a loose interpretation of the scriptures that suggested people would not know where the Christ would be from. This is in clear contrast to other scriptures that point out that he would be from Bethlehem. So confusion reigns. But in the midst of all this, Jesus continues to bring clarity. He sees their heads spinning and takes advantage of this opportunity to drive home another key point about who he is. Yes, you know me. You know where I come from. No mystery there. And now we hear the same theme that he highlighted earlier. I have been sent here. I did not come of my own will. I am under a different authority that is not my own. In verse 28 we read, He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. In other words, if you really knew who God was, if you understood his nature, and you really knew the truth about the one who sent me, you should know me. They should have known. Jesus' brother should have known. God had been revealing himself to these people for thousands of years. The very holiday they were celebrating marked God's provision for them. They had escaped their captors in Egypt. They had survived their ordeal in the wilderness by God's provision, and only by that provision. They wouldn't have made it any other way. Here was another provision directly from God, the Christ himself, and for the most part, they missed it. However, some of them did get it. John makes this clear in verse 31. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? They use very simple logic to break through the barriers in their heads. Now a light was dawning. Who could do all this, teach like this, make arguments like this? If the real Christ has yet to appear, would we expect anything more than what we're seeing now? Why? Once they crossed through this barrier in their heads, they moved from unbelief, with a focus on glorifying themselves and their own ideas and biases, to belief, glorifying the man they now realized was the Christ that they had long expected. Yet the Pharisees are still trying to grab Jesus, to silence him. John reminds us that his hour had not yet come. It would come soon. But right now, Jesus was standing strong. No one could touch him. It was not his time to submit to man's will. A time would come. That hour was close, but it wasn't now. Jesus emphasizes this in his final point of our passage today. In verse 33 and 34, he says, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. My time is near when you will see me go silent, when I will suffer in your hands, when I will allow my body to be beaten, when I will allow nails to be driven through my hands and feet, when I will bleed on that rough wooden cross, when I will look down while all this is happening and forgive those who are doing this to me, when I will die, and when I will die in your place for the sins you have committed. The Jews were even more confused. Where could he go where they would not go? 
must be amongst those horrible Greeks. We would never go there. Again, they were still missing it. Again, their personal biases were clouding their judgment. I'm grateful that John points out that uh, some of the crowd believed in him. Uh, there is hope. Some of them got it. If we look a bit further on in the scriptures, we also learn that his brothers eventually got it. In Acts chapter 1, we read about how the apostles gathered gather together in an upper room in Jerusalem. There were some other people there as well with them. Verse 14 reads, All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers and sisters. See, I told you his sisters were the smart ones. His brothers finally got it. One of them, James, wrote a book of the New Testament and became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. I wonder how he felt about John recording his story of unbelief. <laughs> Many people have come to know the Lord late in life, and often through times it forced them to come to grips with who Jesus really is. One famous example was a man who professed to know Christ, but then rose to a position of great power and leadership. He was involved in a sordid affair that destroyed his reputation to those around him and revealed his unbelief. After that, he was mortally injured. As he lay on his deathbed and looked up at a pastor who refused to give him communion for the way he had been injured, but had explained the gospel to him, he uttered these words, I am a sinner. I have a tender reliance on the mercy of the Almighty through the merits of the Lord Jesus Christ. Before he died, exactly 216 years ago, on this day, July 12th, he was reconciled to God. His name was Alexander Hamilton, one of the founding fathers of the United States of America, and you might have heard a little bit about him recently. We all have a story. We're all struggling with unbelief. It manifests in many different ways, but it all comes down to our will versus God's will, which is basically the same as our glory versus God's glory. John walks us through the story to show us who Jesus is. Some got it, some did not, and some wanted him dead. They didn't want to hear from him again. Where are we in this passage? Do you see yourself in one of these groups? Do we really get who Jesus is? Do we understand what John is saying here? Does his story ring true to us in laying out all these points of view about who Jesus was? Is he achieving the goal of showing us who this person really is, as he intended to do? As he stated, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Life in his name is the essence of glorifying God. What is our response today? I hope and pray that you will take some time to look at the areas of unbelief in your life. Look through this passage. Think about, if you were there at that time, where you would have been. What part of the crowd would you would have been in? What would you have thought about the words that were said on that day? And take some time to think about who Jesus really is, what he offers, the love he showed, 
even as he was arguing with the Jewish leaders, was amazing. And the grace he showed by giving them the time they needed to move from unbelief to belief also amazes me. He will be patient. He will wait for us. It's time to step out from the confused crowd and to make a choice about who he is and judge with right judgment. That's what John's challenging us to do in this passage. Judge with right judgment. Once we understand who he really is, our lives will never be the same. And we will understand that we all rely on the mercy of the Almighty and on the merits of the Lord Jesus Christ. As was said by Alexander Hamilton on this day over 200 years ago. Let's pray. Father, thanks for this passage. Thanks for showing us how confused and And, and mixed up the crowd was back then during that time. But Lord, thanks for bringing clarity. Thanks for showing them who you really were. Lord, we all struggle with unbelief in our own lives. Some days are better than others, but Lord, we pray that as we look at this passage, we can understand where we fit in there and that we would judge with right judgment and come to you and seek your glory and not our own. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.